0: We certainly are blessed again with the opportunity that's ours to gather, to assemble on this Sunday afternoon. We're thankful that God has sufficiently looked upon us with favor, that He's allowed us to assemble earlier today as we did, and to also look forward to another assembly yet today. We're always so thankful and honored that we can come together, and it's our desire that these particular times of service can certainly be encouraging to us, but even more importantly, to be glorifying to God. As you know, we've come to the last Sunday in January this year, and we'll use this occasion for our first of our questions and answer sessions for this year. We had made the choice that we'd continue doing these, and as always, I'm thankful for your questions, and I know that we can each be encouraged as we give thought to them as well. As you can see, this opening installment, one of them will involve that Luke 17, verse 3, so I hope that you still have your Bible open at that location. And we will give some attention to that, particular, uh, to that particular consideration here tonight. This opening slide is one that is a, a slide of introduction. And as usual, it's a reminder that the questions are those that, that you have offered. So it's not choices that I have made. But as usual, you have the liberty, the luxury of offering uh, or direction at least on these particular lessons as, as you do that each month. And as usual, make use of that little box there on the table. So if you have questions or things that you would wish us to consider, make those known. You don't have to sign your name to them. Just happy to make use of them. And certainly I already have a few questions for next month, but we'll continue going from that month and thereafter. This opening question of the night tonight has to do with the text before us, and it asks us the following question. The Bible has a great deal to say about forgiveness. When someone sins against me, do they have to ask me to forgive them, or do I forgive them even if they do not ask? You had a good question. What about the aspect of forgiveness and to bring the end result of that about? You'll notice on that slide, let's begin to give some thought to that question and to that consideration. At the top of that slide, I've asked you to notice forgiveness is a rather common theme in the Bible. The word itself occurs about 61 times in the New Testament alone. Now that means, as you and I reflect upon that New Testament consideration, it would do us well to ask, what does the word mean? When the Holy Spirit made use of that word and forever put it in the Holy Text of the Bible, what does that word signify? You and I know many of those particular passages will involve God's forgiveness of us. But others involve our forgiveness of our fellow man. The word you'll notice about the first part of that slide, I've listed for you what what its Greek spelling would look like, but just notice what the definition would, would literally mean. The word literally means to send away, to send off, to let go. Another way to think of it, to leave. You can appreciate this definitive difference in state of affairs from before to after. Something is being let go. It's being sent away. You'll notice then in that usage, I've asked you to notice there are some common usages of that word. As for example, in John eleven forty four, 44, as well as Matthew Mark chapter 1, verse 18. In those instances, you see that, let him go. Well, you notice here was a person who was under initially some kind of restraint and then let him go, remove the restriction, send it away. The first one had to do with nets. As fishermen, in fact, would have nets and they would let them go, that same kind of word in Greek was used to describe that circumstance. But you and I know that by far the matter of greatest import to us is the connection of that word to sin, what is involved in letting sin go? To remove that state of affairs wherein sin, you see, is being the issue which is clouding that situation. In 1 Kings 8, verse 34, an Old Testament usage where we see that Hebrew word employed in that particular connection. In Colossians 1:14 and New Testament 1, as well as Acts chapter 13, verse 38. Could I point you to thinking about that Acts text? There, it is the statement that under the Old Testament regime, there was no forgiveness. There was no ultimate and final letting go. But now, under Christ, there is this letting go. There is now an occurrence whereby those sins can be released and the guilt connected to them is in that way removed. One of the next things on that slide, then, is just a reminder to us. When we're talking about God forgiving us we might well recall in 1 John 3 verse 4 whosoever sinneth transgresseth also the law for sin is the transgression of the law and of course sin is what needs to be forgiven God's law has been violated it is God's law that has been transgressed and thus in terms of sin there's a letting go and hence an obtaining of forgiveness In Romans chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, we have a description of the fact that forgiveness puts in place a circumstance or situation that previously had not been the case. We're going to make application of that on the next slide. As we do that, let's begin, though, to notice what that's describing for us. There are instances in which the Word of God then points us in this direction that forgiveness much like forgiving a debt produces a state wherein that debt was then no longer demanded in payment it's been taken care of look at these particular passages iniquities are forgiven sins are covered the lord will not impute sin now that's that very romans text that you and i had just noted but with it, doesn't it point us out to the fact then that there is at first this state that is of rightness. But then, due to transgression and sin, that state has been tarnished. There is no longer a togetherness. But then, into to desire repentance or to obtain forgiveness, there is then a remaking of that state of purification. That state of togetherness, that state of soundness, You and I can apply that from our our position in regard to God very easily. When my life is overcome in sin, that means that this state of togetherness that was once the case between me and God is no longer there. I have been removed to a distance from Him because He's holy and I'm not. And He's pure and sinless and I'm not. And so to obtain forgiveness is to close that chasm to move me back into a state in which I am with Him in togetherness and holiness. And so forgiveness brings about a state, an environment, if you will, that had not been the case previously. The person who asked the question then asks us this. Do I forgive someone even when they have not asked for it? Even when they have not made any movement toward accomplishing that end? The following statements on that slide will develop that in light of our previous discussion. And it starts with this one. That state of harmony and that state of peace and state of fellowship, that cannot be reinstated in the final analysis unless both parties are desirous of it. We each know that from a practical standpoint, don't we? Do we not know God wants all of us to be forgiven? But if I don't want that to be true, it's never going to happen. God won't forgive me unless I repent and unless I choose to put into practice that which He has said is demanded in order for me to be forgiven. But all the while, God would have all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy 2, verse 4. Doesn't the inspired writer put it like this in 2 Peter 3:9? God is not slack concerning his forgiveness, but is long suffering to us were not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God desires all of us to be forgiven. But unless you and I desire it to be the case, and we wish to reinstate that state of harmony and perfection with Him, then it shall not come to pass. About the middle of that slide, I ask you then to make the application to the state of affairs before our question. Suppose there is a person, perhaps a brother in Christ, who has offended me. You and I might greatly desire there to be a removal of the guilt connected to that. We might desire for things to be right. But what if that other person does not want to reinstate this? What if that person, for whatever reason, does not have a desire for any repentance? Then can we ultimately forgive them? As you come near the bottom of that slide, one of the applications we can easily make again is to what God has done for you and me. But the final analysis of it takes us to this last slide, for that question at least. Let's revisit Luke 17, verse 3. Take heed to yourselves. If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. And if he repent, forgive him. As Jesus made that teaching, he pointed out the following. First, take heed. There's certainly a great amount of care that must be put into practice relative to this. But as you and I take heed with watchfulness and with care, he now gives this explanation. If thy brother trespass against thee. So here's an individual who is has wronged us trespassed against us and in some way brought about a mental appreciation of wrong done by one toward myself jesus said if that happens first rebuke him bring that matter to his or her attention isn't it true it could well be the person was not even aware of what they did that i took wrongly or that offended me in that particular way isn't it often true in life that can be the way that things are You and I have in fact been wrong, but they never understood that what they said hurt us that way. They never appreciated that what they chose to do had the implication of wronging as you and I appreciated it. Jesus said, rebuke him. Bring this to his attention. And if it was done directly with mental appreciation to bring that about, then they need to know that they wronged us. Rebuke them. And then it says, if he repent, forgive him. If he doesn't repent, knowing full well that the wrong was done, and appreciative of that by which it was taken, then you realize that was stated as an if-then arrangement. If he repents, forgive him. Now, if he doesn't repent, you're not obligated to extend that matter of forgiveness. May I say that it would be impossible to do it. But could I also remind us of this as you and I close that slide? That can lead to a life that is a very hard one. You and I mustn't hold grudges. We mustn't, in fact, hold those statuses in life wherein we think that matter of evil against another. Now, notice the way I've tried to word that at the bottom of that slide. You and I notice that Jesus even Himself stated this same matter in Matthew chapter 18. We are obligated to forgive as many times as the person will ask us to forgive them. As many times as they exhibit repentance. Jesus even said, if he repents seven times in a day and comes to you, you extend forgiveness. We cannot hold grudges that way. It leads to a life that's bitter. It leads to a life that's negative. It leads to a life that has in many ways an internal hardness to it. But if that brother won't repent if he has no desire to remake a peaceful and harmonious relationship, we cannot force him to do it. We can't make him repent. And that leads me to close that slide this way. In Acts chapter 8, verses 54 and following, you might recall that Stephen had preached a very powerful message, and they didn't like it. They, in fact, were to the point of killing him. And yet even he prayed, Father, Hold not this sin to their charge. He hoped that at some point they would come to their senses and desire for things to be right with God, but He couldn't make them do it. Sounds a lot like Jesus on the cross, doesn't it? When He could look to those who had a hand in putting Him on the cross and pray, Father, in Luke 23, verse 34. Father, it was His prayer that they might be forgiven. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, Aren't we encouraged thus to be kind one to another? You and I can be kind to others even if they have not asked us to forgive them, despite the fact that they have wronged us. Jesus again put it like this in Luke 17, 3, If thy brother has trespassed against you, and if he repents, then forgive him. Even if he doesn't, we won't think ill of him. We won't wish him to be lost. We will hope that he comes to his right thinking and that he will desire to remake a peaceful relationship. As you and I have dealt with question number one tonight, I hope that that discussion of forgiveness has been helpful and has been encouraging, but it does lead us to question number two, which is very different. And this question reads like this. The books of the Bible appear to not be arranged chronologically. Why are the Bible books arranged as they are? Isn't that a good question? The 66 books of the Bible, the person who wrote the question made the observation, it appears that they are not recorded for us in the Bible chronologically. That is to say, in the order in which they were written. Why are they arranged in the way that they are? Well, there are several things about that that are worthy of some discussion. And so, for the next few moments, let's give some thought to the books of the Bible, to their arrangement, to the relationship, to their chronological order. And to think about that, let's begin like this First, the books of the Bible, these 66 books with which you and I have been blessed, they are fixed. There's no question about their placement in the holy volume. There's no question about whether some other books ought to be there. Our question, you see, is back to the order of the 66 that we have. Think of it this way. Back when these books were first in arrangement, they were all written on scrolls. And so, for instance, there might be a bunch of scrolls up here in some scroll holder, and you would pull out one and you would thus read it or at least make presentation using it. But again, all of them were not in one single volume. They were on individualized scrolls. But so you notice at some point over time when information began to be bound, some arrangement by way of their order was selected and they were put in a certain order. You'll notice about the top of that slide that that immediately begins to ask, how were they chosen to be placed in order? What things about it motivated that? When the printing press was invented, all of this, of course, became a matter of great import. There was some recognized order in certain places, and that order was thus followed in later renditions or in later printings. In most Western Bibles, like you those you and I have, there are 39 Old Testament books and 27 New Testament books. And you and I are quite familiar with the name and the appreciation of those books, and there's by and large a recognized order to them. For instance, in the Old Testament, there are five books of law, Genesis through Deuteronomy, followed by the books of history, Joshua through Esther, followed by the books of poetry, Job through the Song of Solomon, followed by the books of, uh, the books of prophecy, beginning with Isaiah and ending with Malachi. And that order is the one with which you and I are very familiar. But could I point out then that there was a time when there was a placement as to the ordering of those particular ones? And may I suggest, as far as I'm able to tell, St. Jerome was the one who first placed them in that order that you and I still use, at least in most Western Bibles. Now, he did that in the 4th century AD. So that's been a long time ago from your perspective and mine. But that order has, by and large, been accepted and followed in all the Western Bibles ever since. Now, that translation that he made was a Latin translation from the originals over into Latin. But yet, that still leaves a lot of matters unanswered. As you close that slide with it might well be this. I think it's fascinating that the Word of God itself makes a reference to even in that day certain recognized divisions. Would you look with me at Luke chapter 24, verse number 44. This is, of course, after the Lord's resurrection, but before He had ascended. And as He spoke with those apostles and others, He made this observation. Luke 24, verse 44. And He, that's Jesus, said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the Law of Moses and in the Prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. And even Jesus thus made an observation that there were these recognized divisions of the various presentations of the revelation of God. There was the Law of Moses, there was the Prophets, and there were the writings, what was also called the Psalms. Now, those three divisions that the Lord mentioned there, you and I can easily make connection between them and the various Bible books. The Law of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But then He makes mention of the prophets. You and I have already noted 17 Bible books would have fit in easily for us into that category from Isaiah through Malachi. And then there are the Psalms. Now, the book of Psalms is the longest Old Testament book, in fact, the longest Bible book. And you might well be understanding with me how that it could easily be the opening book in the entire record consisting of the so-called Psalms or the writings. It would have had the various books in it again, such as the Kings, the books of Psalms, and other things like that. But with it, what about the further developments of this point? If those divisions were recognized then, it still brings us back to the question the person asked. What about the chronological arrangement? What if you looked at the Bible books chronologically? I've listed on the current slide before you the chronological ordering of the books of the Bible. Look how different it looks. Genesis, Job, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Let's pause long enough to observe. It certainly would appear that the book of Job, which occurs much later in our English Bible, is actually a very, very old book. Actually being apparent to take us back to a time which is really about the time of Abraham. So really if you're going to read it in a chronological way, you likely would read the first 22 chapters of Genesis, and then the entirety of the book of Job, and then go back and finish the book of Genesis it likely fits in directly in the time of Abraham, which is again about Genesis chapter 22. But let's go even forward beyond that. Then we have Joshua and Judges and Ruth and the two books of Samuel, but then 1 Chronicles slides into place. Because again, in terms of the writer of that book, as some other appreciations, it may well be clear that the book of 1 Chronicles might be different than its actual placement in, in our English Bible. But then we have Psalms and the Song of Solomon and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and then 1 and 2 Kings, as well as the other books that I've listed for your consideration. But one of the things to note is, isn't it interesting how that the ordering that you and I are accustomed to in our Western Bible is not chronological? In the New Testament, things are also different. What about the ordering of the 27 New Testament books? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. May I point out to you that this, in fact, is a bit of controversial. It's not even clear that Matthew precedes Mark. There are many who think that Mark was written before Matthew. Now, it's hard to reach that definitive conclusion because the Bible doesn't itself tell us, but there's certainly a lot of evidence that might suggest Matthew's not even the first one in terms of order. But look at what follows it. I list for you the book of Acts. There's also some question as to whether Acts really ought to be later than that. The particular listing I have presented to you is not the one that, in my opinion, is actually the correct one. This is one that some scholars have come up with. I think Acts was written quite a bit later than this. I think 1 Thessalonians preceded Acts by several years, in fact. But look at what this ordering presents. 1 and 2 Thessalonians do appear to be very near near in time. 1 and 2 Corinthians appear very near in time. Then there seems to be Galatians. And then there seems to be Romans following the Galatian letter. Not only that, there's James and Colossians and then Philemon. You can appreciate all of them for yourself. But isn't the point to be noted the particular selection of the ordering in the Bible was not handed down by God Himself? The individual scrolls were there, but men have selected to place them in a particular order. I write all of that that way because of what's on the next slide. Let's make some observations and some conclusions about some of these. There is no sacred arrangement to the books of the Bible, either Old or New Testament. In fact, there are several ancient manuscripts of the Old Testament that actually present the information in the Old Testament books in a different order in which we have them in our English Bible. I've listed one particular example for you. A few weeks ago, in part of our study, we mentioned the famous Syriac Peshitta presentation of the Old Testament that particular version has the book of job after the book of deuteronomy we've already learned that the time frame of job seems very clearly to be very much older than its placement in our english bible that example is just one look at the new testament case similarly in the new testament there's no sacred ordering to these books the information now is sacred And the presentation is sacred in terms of these 27 pieces of information. But you'll notice that I've listed again a particular example for you to consider. You recall again a few weeks ago as we listed the various ancient manuscripts, the Codex Sinaiticus. That particular presentation of the original Greek presents the book of Acts after the letters of Paul. That means the book of Acts in that particular rendition falls after all the Pauline letters and so it would have fallen much later in our new testament after colossians after the thessalonian letters after timothy after titus after philemon acts wouldn't have come until very late in terms of the actual books as you and I would read them now is it still inspired in terms of material absolutely That led me to make a few statements as you close that particular slide. The ordering of the books of the Bible that you and I have been given in terms of our Western understanding, it is important, it would seem to me, to be mindful of that ordering. Because as Bible study takes place or as preaching takes place and references made to a certain Bible book, it's important to be able to find it. It's important to know where that book is. And thankfully, you and I have an order that is quite familiar to us. And so think about those New Testament books, Matthew and Mark, Luke and John. These gospel accounts that highlight the greatest life ever lived, the life of Jesus Christ. But then that's followed by this book of Acts. And although we've learned that chronologically Acts may well be quite a bit later than Romans or the Corinthian epistles, There is something to be noted about the systematic development that you and I have been given. After studying that greatest life, the life of Christ, in Acts we learn how to appropriate the blessings of His life to us. We learn how to become a Christian. We see example after example of those who did become Christians. And we see the establishment of the church in that book. And so there is some sense in which we can appreciate the value of Acts in that place. Once we have then mastered becoming a Christian, what about the 21 books that follow it? Beginning with Romans and ending with Jude. How to live the Christian life every day. Every moment of every day. How to be motivated to be faithful in and out of the characteristic series of life lessons that you and I appreciate. Then the book of Revelation. The closing book. How to die in Christ. How to be faithful no matter what the circumstances are. And so it makes some degree of sense to think about the messages of the 27 books in that order. As you close that slide with me, whether it's for reference, for study, whether it's for the other particulars, it's important to know these books of the Bible and to appreciate the messages that they contain and the ability this hours to use them. Now as you close that second question with me, those are our questions for this particular evening. And so let's conclude our lesson like this. We've looked at forgiveness, the considerations connected to repentance and forgiveness, and we've also reflected upon the books of the Bible. You may give some thought to that chronological ordering in this one final observation. Each week, when our bulletin is presented, you may notice that on a part of that bulletin is a Bible reading for that week that Bible reading is chronological. If you follow through that from the opening of the year to the end of the year, from January to December, the particular chapters that are in fact invited for us to read are in fact presented in a chronological way. And so that means that as you give thought to that chronology, it does not match the Bible books in the order they're presented to us. In fact, is presented to us in a way that is in terms of the life and times that those books are describing chronologically i hope that you and i have found some of these considerations tonight intriguing because they have definitely been motivating as i've already mentioned we have more questions awaiting and come the month of february we'll take up some of them and give thought to some interesting developments that challenge us in a number of ways for tonight why don't we offer the lord's invitation like this the ordering of these books of the bible has brought before us the wonderful message of god's forgiveness and aren't we thankful that god has extended to us the opportunity to have our sins forgiven oh how quickly we should rush to his side desiring that we would be right and that those sins would be taken away as we learn the actual meaning would be before us tonight if you have known the life of Christ. And perhaps knew the faithfulness and the strength in that part of life for some time. But over the course of time, you've gradually moved away from Him. You've begun to live in a way that is not pleasing in His sight. He has not given up on you. Don't give up on yourself. Won't you come back to His faithful side, desiring to be right in His side? that requires that you make repentance of those sins, desire to turn aside from them. And again, if you will repent, He will forgive. As you repent and confess them, He would quickly make them and take them away. If you have never become a Christian, though, in order to first contact the precious blood of Christ, you need to obey that initial matter of obedience in light of the gospel. Believe in the Lord, won't you? Repent of your sins, confess the, the greatness of His name, and be baptized for the remission of your sins. If we may assist you tonight in that way, what a joyous occasion it would be. What a happy, eternal circumstance for you that it would be, and we'd, we'd be honored to celebrate with you. If we could help you tonight in that way, it'd be our joy and privilege. Brother Don has made an announcement of a song of encouragement. If during this time you would wish to make a public response to the gospel, we'd like to invite you and we'd like to encourage you and do that while together we stand and while we sing.